1: fresh for everyone. Personology is a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Amy Winehouse was an English singer and songwriter of soul, rhythm and blues, and jazz. She was known for her deep, emotionally expressive lyrics and vocals, and her eclectic mix of musical genres. She shot to fame, winning five Grammy Awards for her original and innovative songs that revealed her painful personal life. My guest today is Jordan Runtog, former music editor at People Magazine and VH1.com, a regular contributor at Rolling Stone and EW, and host of the iHeart Music podcast, Rivals. Amy Winehouse was born in September of 1983, in a suburb of basically North London to a Jewish family, Mitchell, a cab driver, Janice, a pharmacy assistant, but it's sort of a very middle-class life, financially a middle-class situation. There was already a brother, her older brother, Alex, in the family who was four years older than her. And really parents who loved her, who wanted her, who wanted to have a family who wanted to have another child, but there were already difficulties in that relationship and therefore in the family.
3: probably the singular event of her childhood was her parents' divorce. And her dad later on would admit to having had a lot of affairs in Amy's childhood and sort of regretted not leaving earlier in a way, because it it did make for a lot of tension between him and his wife. And it left this gaping hole in Amy, as it does for a lot of children of divorce, where she... Missed him and longed for him, but she also resented him. And she wrote a song on her first album, Frank, called What Is It About Men? Which is an incredible song. And it it basically picks apart her father's failings before admitting, you know, that she's going to also succumb. She calls it her Freudian fate and and talking about just people's sexual inhibitions in a way.
2: This is so important because especially that she did refer to Freud. (laughs) (laughs) She was very aware of Oedipal issues. And those were born out of having, you know, clearly her father loved her and he wanted to be a present father. But as you point out, he started having an affair, particularly one affair really when she was only 18 months old with a woman that he worked with that he clearly fell in love with. And so he appeared to be working all the time. That's what Amy remembers, that he was working all the time. And so he was absent, a very absent father. He was probably in retrospect with this other woman a good amount of that time, but nobody knew that at the time. And especially his wife, Janice, who feels that she was completely blindsided and had no idea, but he was very absent. And because he was absent a lot when he was present, he was very overindulgent. So he rarely set limits and even if she was doing things, which apparently even according to her, she often was trying to get attention and doing so by doing bad behavior, by acting out, by being even rebellious really at a very young age. And this was, you know, an attention getting maneuver that she continued and continued up the ante, especially as. He did not tell her what, you know, she couldn't do that or really set limits. Either he wasn't around or he overindulged her. And her mother, who was more present, but still working because they needed two salaries in this family, so not omnipresent, her mother, she described as very passive, loving, but not able to stand up to Amy essentially and really set limits. And in fact, she makes reference to that too, verbally, you know, I needed a mother to just say no and her mother didn't her mother was sort of like whatever whatever went on because she was kind of overwhelmed partially she was overwhelmed because that was her nature to not set limits and to be kind of passive but also because it turns out that she had ms and she didn't know it for like 15 years so she was often not feeling well and she was working and in fact it was her mother who was an important person in amy's life cynthia who was often responsible for a lot of the childcare and, you know, maybe taking to school, moving kids around. And that's important because that was an important relationship for Amy. And it's also important because Cynthia and actually both her parents were very musical people. Even though they weren't musical stars, let's talk about the presence of music in her early life.
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, a lot of it, I think, was initially from her father, who worshipped Frank Sinatra and Sarah Vaughan and Dinah Washington. And as you said, she loved her father so much. I mean, she was a self-described daddy's little girl. She had the phrase tattooed on her arm. And so a lot of those musical influences from her dad, she grew up also idol worshipping from her early days. That's where a lot of her, her musical roots came from. But as you said, her grandmother, Cynthia, her mother's mother, dated jazz legend in England called Ronnie Scott. And she had all these connections in the jazz community. And I think some of her uncles also were jazz musicians. So it it was a very musical household. But As you said, her grandmother, Cynthia, recognized her gifts, I think, probably before her parents and was the one who recommended that she start attending stage school. And there's a great story that her father says he goes to see one of her early recitals and he assumed she was just going to be acting. He had no idea that she could sing like that. She'd sung around the house a bit, but he was just as shocked as most of the people in the crowd when he first saw her on the stage and opened her mouth.
2: So he loved jazz music. He played, as you said, Sinatra, who became very important to Amy herself, Ella Fitzgerald, Dinah Washington. These were like the early recordings, you know, and musical influences. This maternal uncle who played the horn, mother's sister was a jazz singer herself, a sort of semi-professional, if you will, not, you know, not really professional, but sang in clubs and so on. And that made quite the impression on her. At the same time this is going on, she is... First of all, it's important to say she is actually very intelligent. She is noted as intelligent in early school years. She reads fairly early. She writes early. Her potential, let's say, academically seems to be there on the one hand. And then on the other hand is this rebellious behavior. And as she sort of describes it, easily bored. Not much holds her attention certainly not the kinds of things that school offered academically and particularly in a rule bound sort of way. Not her, as she would have described it, not her cup of tea, <laughs> um, but music, music did and singing did. And then sometimes she even describes becoming so overwrought or panicky and anxious in school that she would just, burst out into a fly me to the moon by Frank Sinatra as her way of just expressing her anxiety and singing at the top of her lungs which of course did not win her any friends with her teachers her family is they are jewish and they do jewish traditions so Cynthia introduces sort of the idea of shabbat dinner having friday night dinners and those elements of family and the traditions of the religion seem to be important to Amy but not religion itself. She's not a religious person, but she does describe family and family identity as important.
3: It was a great story. When she was at school, she was in the school's chapel playing with tarot cards. And one of the teachers caught her and said, you can't play with tarot cards in this church. She looks up and just goes, but I'm Jewish.
2: So her idea is like sort of like spirituality or whatever that meant to her family. Right. And that's not unusual in a Jewish family that maybe they're more secularly consistent in traditions, but not necessarily religious. And it was that kind of family for her. Also, as you bring up, she is going to school, her father's absent, and he thinks he shouldn't leave for the sake of the children. But at age nine, for Amy, they have this discussion, the mother and father, and then they come and present to the kids that he's going to leave. They're going to get divorced. Apparently, he doesn't want to leave. He loves her. And he loves his lover. I just think it's important for people to understand that's the model of the man, Mitchell, that is Amy's father, that he thinks it would be reasonable to have it both ways. Janice, despite her passiveness, does say, no, that's not going to work for me, thankfully. And he says, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to leave and be with the other woman. And they explain this to Amy. and there, there does seem to be this poignant moment where they explain to both children that they're going to get this divorce. And apparently, Amy's reaction is to erupt in giggles, which makes Mitchell think she's fine with this. And he always describes it that way. She was fine with the divorce. But I think clearly what they didn't understand, and there's other evidence to suggest that neither of them are psychologically very sophisticated people who have a good read on their daughter and her emotional responses, they think that she's okay and they go on with life as usual. But in fact, Amy is far from okay. It is right after this time when she starts behaviors that range from what's called self mutilation, but basically cutting herself. And shortly thereafter, alcohol use, really by the age of 12. And then shortly following that sexual activity, such that her mother at age 15 has already put her on birth control pills because she's come in to find her in fact, with a boy clearly in a sexual situation. And this is really important and lays a lot of groundwork, I think, for everything from her amazing creativity to the degree of pain and emotion that she's able to express in her lyrics, because young people who cut do so usually because they're either experiencing intense depression and or anxiety, and even something that I'll later explain, the beginnings of borderline personality disorder, which of course we can't diagnose Amy because I haven't spent time with her, but she does meet an extraordinary number of criteria for borderline personality disorder, which does start usually in teens. And cutting behavior is certainly very potentially indicative though as i said it could just be depression or anxiety but she does shortly thereafter start to really describe feeling depressed and clearly her parents splitting up and the father moving somewhere else and really only being available to her on weekends is traumatic for her i
3: think also one of the most troubling things that both her parents miss fairly obvious signs was developing eating disorder she would talk to her mother and say mom I've, I've developed this really great new diet where I eat anything I want and then I, I bring it all up and her mother just thought this was you know something that teen girls go through and it would pass and kind of ignored it and, and her, her father sort of mentioned similar memories too and they didn't ignore it and this was something that's a recurring theme throughout her life and sort of the more time elapses between her death and now, we kind of think back. And I think her brother actually went on record recently and said, you know, I think that her eating disorder was really what weakened her system so much that probably ended up killing her. It's something that shows up again and again throughout her story, and it's really under-discussed.
2: Absolutely. And it's worth noting that actually body image issues specifically are a big symptom potentially of borderline personality disorder. And so many Both men and women, although women suffer more often than men, who have borderline personality disorder also have an eating disorder. And bulimia, as opposed to anorexia, seems to be the issue that Amy really struggled with. In other words, uh, binging on a good amount of food. So it's not that she just restricted all her food. She would eat. But then, as you point out, she would throw it up. And she did reveal this to her parents, who continued to be like, this is a phase and she'll pass out of it. So we're really not concerned, which really, I think, Sounded at least the way it's described as more of a failure to understand anything about eating disorders. You know that they just weren't perhaps not educated in any of these matters, and so didn't understand how dangerous this could be.
3: And eating disorders and the borderline personality disorder, because so many of the symptoms really just seem like it's hard to distinguish between just being a rebellious teen and getting tattoos, piercing her nose, acting out in school, which she later says was part of the reason why she ended up being expelled from some theater schools. It's hard to tell if that an underlying psychological problem or if it's just being a teenager
2: so this is the difficult thing for mental health professionals who are trying to help adolescents who are going through as you point out you know what of these symptoms is adolescence and what of these symptoms might be something more it might be helpful for people to understand that if you have borderline personality disorder the symptoms as listed in the dsm-5 are chronic feelings of emptiness which certainly Amy goes on to describe not only in detail, but often in her lyrics. So that's, we will talk about that. And that's worth understanding. Emotional instability. And so, yes, you can think, oh, adolescents, they can be very reactive and up and down. But the day-to-day intense episodic sadness, irritability, and anxiety that she describes would certainly fit. Frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Okay, this ends up being a tremendous theme, as I'm sure you'll point out in her lyrics we can discuss in recurrent songs. Identity disturbance or an unstable self-image or sense of self. We'll describe where that pops up. But, you know, who am I? Where do I end? Am I enough for me? Or do I need to be completely embedded in somebody else to feel whole? And we'll describe that. In future relationships, but I think it'll just be helpful for people to have this groundwork. Impulsive behavior, such as spending, sex, substance abuse, binge eating. So specifically, many of those things really fit. Intense or uncontrollable anger, which again, is something that later we do see with her, but even earlier in school, sort of having tantrums and walking out, leaving, saying inappropriate things intense and interpersonal relationships that are very stormy. And again, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine how she doesn't fit all this self-harming behavior. And lastly, for some people, paranoid thoughts or dissociative symptoms. She meets an extraordinary, like really all of the criteria and then some. So that's why people have wondered if the, in a way this wasn't really always at the crux of the multiple symptoms that she ended up experiencing. But it certainly made school very difficult for her, right? If she wasn't singing and the center of attention, school was really, really hard for her. So she was truant a lot, but she did make good friends. So maybe you could talk a little bit. She had Juliet Ashby is a friend that she meets at, I think, at age 10. And this becomes... A really intense friendship
3: absolutely they formed a band together called it was like a salt and pepper type hip-hop group called sweet and sour and of course Annie was sour and she really almost like a pre-romantic relationship they really formed what some might say an unnaturally close relationship very tempestuous and i seem to remember when, when Juliet like started dating she like Amy started getting really, really sort of angry with her because she felt, again, rejected. It's the recurring theme of somebody leaving her for somebody else, her father and now her best friend.
2: Exactly. And, you know, that, again, if we think about, yes, teenagers and girlfriends often do have very intense relationships with spats and loving feelings. But the the level of intensity here does make you wonder if this is sort of the beginning of these turbulent and difficult relationships that she suffered. She also developed a first boyfriend who becomes important in terms of the first, you know. Musical history. Right, exactly, exactly. Like, who does she write about? And it also brings up, well, let's talk a little bit about him.
3: I mean, I think almost all you need to know about him is in the song Stronger Than Me. <laughs> Uh, You're supposed to be stronger than me. You're here seven years longer than me. You're supposed to be the man real character assassination just listed categorically listing this guy's failings as being somebody who's not strong enough for her who she really is always constantly looking for an older man you know a father figure in a way to be there for her and to kind of put her in her place in a way and i think she she acts out looking for someone you know attention seeking behavior right. someone to finally look and say no stop we care about you stop doing that so chris taylor
2: who was older than her And seemed like a reasonably steady guy, actually, which she interpreted as passive and not exciting. Right. (laughs) He was, you know, I mean, seems like her, her first, you know, identifiable serious boyfriend. And she did want him to be a father figure. And she does describe that in her music. and. She also displays what is, again, typical of people with borderline personality disorder in relationships to either over-idealize or then quickly devalue. It's a phenomenon called splitting. Like, I either see you on a complete pedestal or you are the worst in every way. And so initially, right, she's madly in love with him and they can't have enough of each other. And then at the end, she writes this song you're like a lady man. You are so, you know, feminized to me, not a PC song, but exactly that, right? A total devaluation of him.
3: A total emasculation, too. Of, of, of a total emasculation with,
2: with the intent to be hurtful. No,
3: extremely malicious. It's
2: Religious and to see him in this very devalued light. And so that is lays the groundwork, as I said, for future relationships that that is what she does and also that she therapeutically, according to her, pours her feeling states into her lyrics, which she finds to be one of the ways that she can express herself and actually make herself feel better. That's the beginning of that.
3: Maybe me, one of the most interesting songs from, she releases an album called Frank, which is nowhere near as famous as Back to Black, but it has some amazing songs on it. It's more of a sort of a jazz influenced album. There's a song called I Heard Love is Blind. And so much of what we know about Amy is this really just fiercely devout, loyal, devoted wife and girlfriend to whoever she's with. I mean, her, her most famous partner is her, her, her husband, her one-time husband, Blake. But she also has a lot of affairs, and she's, which doesn't seem to jibe with the idea of this extremely devoted wife or girlfriend. And it's a song, I Heard Love Is Blind, where she sort of talks about Justifying why she had this affair. She was just is telling her boyfriend that she, she slept with this guy because it looked like him. He wasn't there. Her boyfriend wasn't there, so this guy looked like him. He he's not as tall, but it was dark, and I was lying down. I couldn't tell. Uh what did you expect? You left me here alone, she says in the song.
2: And you were in my mind. So as long as it was you in my mind, it's not really it's cheating. It's not cheating.
3: You've been on my right? mind, yeah.
2: Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back
3: in a moment.
0: That pesky abdominal fat and support your weight management journey. And right now, save over thirty percent on Smart Metabolic Burn at GetSmartBurn.com. The lowest price anywhere. That's GetSmartBurn.com. Don't delay. Transform your life with Smart Metabolic Burn from Brain MD. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Our products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
4: Snag a job is where America goes to hire
5: Amy is
2: already achieving success at this point, right?
3: Yeah, she's sort of a a buzzed about artist in the UK. I think her, her Frank did number, Mm -hmm. I think got to 13 in the charts. It wasn't released in the States or anything, but locally she was, she was generating a lot of buzz and, and people had a lot of high hopes for her because nobody sounded like that, looked like that. This was in the, she was signed to a guy named Simon Fuller, who was the guy who started Pop Idol, which kind of became American Idol over here. And it was all about pop stars being this really perfectly produced, he also founded the Spice Girls too, these like idols of perfection. You know, idol is a very telling word there. And here comes Amy, who just sings about all of her flaws and, you know, just extra relationship affairs and just all these things that are really, you know, a lot of people would view as very shameful. She sort of wears them on her sleeve and makes this beautiful music, which she sings like nobody else. I mean, I, I don't think we've talked enough about her incredible instrument that she was blessed with. So um, she really stuck out, even though she hadn't had a hit at that point in, this is about 2004, 2005, people knew the name and had expected great things from her. So she releases her first album, Frank, the promotion's done. Uh, she's sort of Has some time off to herself for the first time in as an adult, really. And it's the first time she's not really like struggling to get a record deal, struggling to record, struggling to gig all over the place. She has some downtime and she's at a pub and she meets Blake.
2: He's a music video production assistant, sort of on the fringe, not really a successful guy.
3: And it's really love at first sight. And Those around her have never really been able to quite figure out why, because he, as you said, he's just sort of on the fringe of the entertainment industry. He's not a very powerful guy. He's not rich. He's not particularly talented. He's not, no offense, not particularly handsome. But he becomes this almost living embodiment of her rebellious streak. And they both immediately just fall in with each other. They become fixated on each other, absolutely absorbed. Obsessed is probably the the, the best word. Well, you
2: know, one could posit some other drivers in terms of what attracted her to him. He is involved with a girlfriend. So technically, he's unavailable, right? Very true. So she becomes the other woman when she gets involved with him. And the other woman is who got her father, Mm -hmm. right? Who, Who end up with her dad, the other woman. So she is now playing that role, which probably is preferable role to her. And her singing about, you know, her view of infidelity allows her to forgive all parties in the original infidelity that occurred in her life, her father. And also to some degree demonstrates why she might be so drawn to the role of the other woman. But I would suggest that that is part of the mix. And it is also interesting that the people that she is drawn to are more like the people in her family, more like her father. Her father was a cab driver. And in fact, he was a cab driver who was out of work. He really, for many years of her childhood, wasn't working. That was okay with him. He wasn't a highly ambitious guy and he wasn't a successful guy. And, you know, here's, as you said, uh, Frank might not have catapulted her to the top of the charts, but she had already won Best Female Solo Artist in Britain And when she met Blake. But also important, as I had said earlier, she started drinking alcohol by the age of 12. It is known that those who start drinking alcohol before the age of 15, because the brain is so plastic early in young life, there are changes made that make it five times as likely that you will basically be an alcoholic if your brain is introduced to alcohol repeatedly before the age of 15. So she's already drinking at age 12. She's already smoking cigarettes. She's already piercing herself, getting tattoos. <laughs> you know, she she is is demonstrating her direction. And it's true that a lot of it, is appealing to creative people who are, you know, in the singing world, in the, in the creative world, but she's already pretty far out there at a very young age. And he embodies a lot of that. So while he might not be very successful, or as you point out, particularly attractive, he's very involved with drugs, more so than she at that point. And that seems to be the nature, sadly, of a lot of their connection
3: drug use. She later said in a few interviews that she first started experimenting with heroin and, and crack cocaine because she wanted to feel what he was feeling. And and this is something she's demonstrated a number of times. One time during an argument Blake cut himself with a with a bottle or glass or something and she reached over and took the glass and cut herself, gave herself a corresponding wound to feel that as well. So a lot of his flaws she adopted, his vices rather, she adopted just to sort of be there with him. They had this sort of Bonnie and Clyde, us against the world mentality.
2: I would argue even that her description of I need to be in your skin and feel what you feel, that need to merge, had to do with her struggle with a lack of sense of self, her feeling of emptiness and confusion about who am I, again, a predominant symptom often in borderline personality disorder, but she described this feeling of needing to feel what somebody else felt for herself, you know, to, to feel in order to feel. And sadly, as you point out, you know, she was by then, she smoked pot and cigarettes and drank, but she wasn't doing cocaine and she wasn't doing heroin until she met Blake. And he was, and he introduced her to that. And she became, you know, involved with and addicted to harder drugs, sadly, And that became a big part of her continued journey, really, until the end, I would say, sadly. And that combination with bulimia and the eating disorder was particularly damaging to her body. And so she, you know, in terms of being vital and strong and being able to do the kinds of things that she'd been doing, but she was someone who would so immerse herself in her work, right? She would work for hours and hours and hours.
3: Oh, absolutely. In concerts and really needing to be physically strong as you said i mean the drinking around the stage was also extremely excessive she would go to the pub and everybody would have their pint glasses of beer she would have a pint glass filled with whiskey or some kind of spirits and then down it like other people would a beer i mean which is you know and so this is around the era late 2005 when her management tried to get her to go to rehab as she famously sang about and the song pretty much tells the story she said you know i'll go with my father her hero the the, the man that always the only person really who could tell her what to do and put her in her place and he said no nah, you're fine right
2: i ain't got the time and if my daddy thinks i'm fine and suddenly he said you're fine so she she often didn't feel this even when she went was for very short periods of time where it's impossible. I mean, you, you could barely be detoxed and often weren't even officially detoxed in the amount of time, you know, hours to days is not going to rehab.
3: And she would often insist in going with Blake and treating a codependent, you know, drug addicted couple, you, you can't treat them together. And so she would just leave. Exactly.
2: Amazing that actually during this time, she could continue to create, write lyrics basically poetry in a way or journaling her feeling states and then composing music. So talk to us a little bit about her musical work. How she put this together? How would she write and then compose and create, I mean, a Grammy award-winning album during this time of, you know, drug use and turbulence in this relationship?
3: It's funny. She didn't actually write a lot when she was with Blake, but then he went back to his His ex-girlfriend, and the heartbreak. The only thing that she could do with those feelings was to put it into music. I mean, and act out, and and try to drown it with with drugs and alcohol. But all the songs on Back to Black, almost across the board, are about Blake and about you know you go back to her and I go back to black. You know you go back to your ex-girlfriend and I'm just gonna be here with the bottle and and rehab. You know. I never want to drink again. I just need a friend. And it's just, they're all cries for help. Just this incredibly lonely, sad person. Tears dry on their own. I'll I'll be some next man's other woman soon. She wears the other woman tag, as you mentioned, with with pride there. Uh, Love is a losing game. Just The thing about that album I think is just so amazing is that it appeals to the voyeur almost in all of us. It, it is so real and it is so raw and it is so painful and it's executed with such precision. I mean, Mark Ronson's production is, is amazing and, and the backing musician, the Dap Kings are incredible, but just uh, you can't fake that. You have to live through all the pain and heartbreak that she obviously live through in order to write songs like that and perform them. I mean, Love is a Losing Game is like something Sinatra would have sang. That's a a modern standard. It's an incredible song.
2: Her capacity to tap into her inner feeling states and not have to compartmentalize them so much, which many, I mean, most people who are suffering at that level often do. So she did have an unusual capacity for self-reflection and then a creative capacity to... I mean, it's not unusual for people who are suffering and can tap into it to journal or to write or to talk to their therapist about their feelings, but then to have the creative capacity to put it to music that resonated with people and in such an original way was really, well, it was unique. It was kind of one of a kind, but other people connected to it. Or it wouldn't have been so popular.
3: There's something funny about Torch singers where, you know, singers that are singing these very overwrought songs about about heartbreak. We want to believe that it's their story. From Billie Holiday to Janis Joplin to Edith Piaf, all of whom, I believe, you know, died early of, you know, of one form or another broken heart, you know. And it's just, I think after her death, Lady Gaga wrote this really beautiful remembrance of Amy on Twitter that said, she lived jazz, she lived the blues. And I think you could say that about all those other names I just mentioned, too. She was just so small and so fragile, but she had that power. And, you know, I mean, listening to some of her music, I mean, it makes you really believe in souls. Like, you don't know where that, that voice came from. There's the, She was very petite. She was, you know, five feet tall or something. But that huge voice, there's no, no other way to explain how that came out of that body. I think there was a, a beautiful description of her voice as uh, sounding like a broken heart marinating in whiskey and cigarette smoke. Wow. <laughs> it's just very evocative. Yeah, very though.
2: evocative. It also was, I mean, for better and for worse, it was part of her self-destruction, right? She was trying all the while that she's projecting this booming voice. Physically, she's disappearing, right? She's immersed in this eating disorder. She's getting smaller and smaller, literally, as if trying to disappear. She's doing things that actually were in some ways really hurting her voice, right? All the smoking and the drinking and the drug use and making it difficult for her to show up on time for things or participate in concerts that, you know, she needed to and probably would have wanted to. So there was this yin and yang of, you know, putting herself well out there in the world and at the same time shrinking.
3: Interesting that her first song that most people knew, including myself, was Rehab because it almost... You know, it's like making a joke about something that you're ashamed of yourself. Everybody, was like, oh, she knows. She knows she has a problem. It's fine. We can ignore it. It became such a part of her image that we didn't see it anymore. Like it just became like, oh, that's who she is. They're all, this is after Back to Black, health wise, she really started to deteriorate. She also got back with Blake. Blake re entered the picture as soon as she had a hit album, which. I always found very telling. I think he sold his story to one of the British tabloids saying that this huge, you know, multi-platinum album was written about me and then sort of, I hesitate to say, weaseled his way back into her life, but... That's what I'll say. But she was still pining for him. Oh, yeah. I mean,
2: she wanted him back. No question about it. He sort of made pretense of, well, he didn't really marry her for the money. In
3: the divorce settlement, they, he didn't get any money, which is, I, I thought, yes. was interesting.
2: That's interesting. I mean, he said, I wanted to show everybody that I didn't marry her for the money. So it's, it's entirely possible that it didn't have to do with money. But certainly her fame and her it didn't hurt. appeal, he was it didn't hurt. He was certainly happy to be involved and use the money to buy drugs. And to you know, and to stay involved in the fame that was occurring, but she was really emotionally dependent on being with him. You know, that kept her also very involved in the drugs. And I think it's interesting, you know, so many of the men in her life commented, why do you need to have sex like a man? Whatever that meant. Um, I mean, it seemed to me, why do you have a voracious sexual appetite? Or why do you, you know, need to have sex a lot and it doesn't necessarily have to be flowery or romantic, but like, let's get down to it was seems to be what men asked her, right? And
3: she never really understood why that was so confusing to people. She was like, yeah, for me, it's like it's like having a joint, you know, it's like, oh, it feels good. It feels good. Yeah, exactly. She said in an interview that she forgave her father. I think the quote was something like, you know, why should I resent my father for having a penis? Like, like for having that affair. You know, it's just that like, that's a totally natural human thing to want to do, which maybe she believed it. Maybe that's something she told herself to help forgive her father because she did idolize him so much. I don't know. But yeah, her, her views on that are very interesting for somebody who does have such strong attachments to you know, one person at a time, one partner. It seems very dichotomous.
2: Certainly, I would say she envied to some degree her father's ability to be the chooser, right? I choose who I'm going to be with, what I'm going to do. He had more power in the relationship and he left them. They were the left ones. Right. So clearly this was a conflict for her ongoing. You know, she... Wanted to be with Blake, but she didn't want to be the left one. And she didn't want to be the one hurting and the one who felt bereft and needy. You know, she preferred, obviously and understandably, to be the more powerful one. But she often, no matter what happened, ended up feeling like the hurt one. I
3: need love, but love tortures me. There were a number of really interesting profiles written about her in the summer of 2007 after Back to Black came out in the States, and they all have these really sort of troubling moments of where one interviewer describes Amy's just sort of eyes kind of wandering away, and then she snaps back and goes, oh, I'm sorry, I was just thinking about Blake. Just like, can't even stay focused on the conversation at hand because she's thinking about her boyfriend or her, her husband, actually, at that point. They married in Miami, just sort of on the spur of the moment, had like a courthouse wedding, uh, even though he, he's sitting right there. And- She talks about she really admires Dolly Parton, not only for her musical ability, but she loves the idea that Dolly, there's this myth about her that she wakes up four hours before her husband so she could put her face on and get all ready for him to wake up. And she just thinks that's the coolest thing, which,
2: (laughs) you know, I find that a little troubling. Tragic, right? Sad, sad. She does marry him in 2007, and it seems there's a brief period of happiness about that. But there's a lot of drug use and he is now really using a lot of crack cocaine, which it's hard to say something is more addictive and, and concerning the cocaine, but crack, it turns out to be such a dangerous drug, is so highly addictive and ravaging in terms of one's body. This is a disaster for both Blake and Amy. He ultimately gets involved in a physical assault altercation, then he tries to pay off the person he assaulted, and is basically charged with assault and bribery and has to go to prison for 36 months. While he's there, she can't tolerate this separation. She really cannot tolerate it. As you brought up earlier, one thing that's really sad is that while all this use of crack and heroin is going on, and she's sort of self-destructing, the media is as you said, branding her as, well, that's just her, you know, a mess, a real mess. And they're elevating that and brand, mocking her. Mocking her. But also making it almost hard for her to deviate from that brand. Right. Like that's who she is as an artist and it making it hard for her to go to rehab or get herself straightened out because it's almost like this is part of her selling point.
3: And if you if you already have an unstable sense of self, as you mentioned, if you have every paper in the country, in the world telling you this is who you are, you know, who are you to say otherwise in a way if you were her?
2: So her father is saying, no, she's okay. Uh, he seems sadly overly invested in her just continuing to do whatever it is that's making money.
3: Well, at this point he goes on TV and makes an appeal to her. At this point he's recognized that there is a problem, but he goes on British daytime TV to address his daughter. And he claimed it was because that was the only way that she would pay attention to him was to do it in this big public way. I find that questionable. I find that to be a questionable way to try to address a problem with your daughter. But, you know, yeah. I, I don't have kids. I don't know. I'll
2: affirm that. That right. is a okay. questionable <laughs> way. I'll <laughs> affirm that. That is not a not a great way to, to try to convince your child to go to rehab. He seems very concerned about her disappearing, you know, into rehab or anything else for an extended period of time because he keeps reminding her she's got concerts and and he follows her with a tv crew right and you know she needs to keep signing autographs he reminds her and be nice about it and he he just doesn't seem to understand that this has become a life or death situation
3: right i mean the saint lucia period is really interesting this is in early 2009 and she apparently had kicked hard drugs in the fall of 2008 and she really at this period Alcohol was was the big problem in her eating disorder. She had friends in Saint Lucia. She she started dating an actor down there, who recalled that she would basically live on like candy bars and soda and McDonald's and binge and then and then purge. And, and you can see in photos she's she's looking a little healthier. But still, she seems very fragile, but she does a lot of the, the serious, like the skin lesions that like, people who are addicted to heroin tend to have, those have cleared up, and she, she seems a little better. There's pictures of her horseback riding on the beach and, and looking slightly stronger. Really, at this point, it was the booze. There was stories of her being rude to, to wait staff down there and, and everybody at this resort dreaded her coming yeah getting
2: into physical altercations of course this person that she took up with in st lucius was technically cheating on blake who's now in prison and sees a photograph of that and says that that's it i'm going to divorce you and she's like what's the big deal you know hard for her to understand why that would matter but fine then fine if you want to divorce we'll have a divorce you won't get any money, which he didn't, he, which, he didn't um, which is actually kind of amazing.
3: I don't think she ever fully let him go, though. She moved back and she bought a, a new house because she'd been in this one house that she'd had since I think she she signed her first record deal, you know, in 2003. So she bought this new house as a way to kind of start over. But she told the press, oh, yeah, he, he's going to come back and live with me. Like, it's it's going to be great. So there's. I, I don't think she ever really fully let him go i think she thought that they were like these sort of star-crossed lovers who would find their way back to each other let's take a quick break here we'll be back in a moment
5: At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind-down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you, something to wear
2: wins actually three grammys record and song of the year best female pop vocalist i mean really a smash album like an incredible album did she leave you with the impression that she was shocked by her success in that way
3: oh yes i mean the the, the grammys performance i think is one of maybe her last highlights because she's, she's not allowed in in the united states she's officially an undesirable alien because of all of her her drug problems so she's performing on telecast from england and Tony Bennett... Talk
2: about rejection. Talk about I your know, right, right? struggle with rejection, but
3: yes. Oh, it's awful. So Tony Bennett reads the winner for, I think it was Album of the Year, and reads her name. And the look on her face, I, I encourage everyone to, to go to YouTube and look it up. It is genuine shock. You know, you see all these celebrities at these award shows make the shocked face when they win, and it's sort of like, she, her parents are right there. They hug her. I mean, Tony Bennett is one of her dad's big heroes. This is peak moment for her. It is one of the most pure celebrity moments I have ever seen. She has done a really incredible performance earlier that night. She's back. Her voice is in strong form, which at that period in early 2008, which was kind of her low point, that was a rare occasion to get a good set out of her. Uh, A really beautiful moment. And I would say maybe her last high point.
2: I mean, clearly her voice is unique, as you pointed out. Just her instrument itself is, is truly unique. But the way she uses her instrument in this jazzy but modern style that no one is sort of listening to in pop at the moment is
3: also incredibly innovative. Oh, it, it's funny. I mean, she just merged. All, she hit every genre. I mean, she had the rock and roll punk attitude. She has the had the jazz stylings. She had the kind of Motown Ronette, sixties thing that would appeal to to you know people of a certain age group. It really covered all the bases. I mean, her her fan base was so wide for that reason. I mean, it really, hip hop artists loved her. I think Ghostface Killer did a, a verse on one of her songs. Jay-Z did a remix, I think, of one of her songs. A huge number of fans.
2: Yeah, She did go on medication for depression when she was about 15. So she was not a stranger to, nor uncomfortable in a stigma sort of way with receiving treatment. It's just that sadly, I think once the drugs really took hold it wasn't something that she was willing to sort of stay in one place to do. She definitely reported that writing lyrics was therapeutic, as I said earlier, was therapeutic for her, and she continued to do that. But it, I think it's important for people to understand that whether it's self-analysis or with a professional, substance use and abuse make it almost impossible to learn new material and to understand old material in such a way that therapy can really be useful or self-analysis can even really be useful. So for example, when someone comes in with a what we call a dual diagnosis, they've got say substance abuse and perhaps in her case maybe depression or anxiety or borderline personality disorder. The first thing that we we say we have to do is treat the substance abuse in order to then do the therapy on the other diagnosis and have it be meaningful or have it actually do something. So sadly, once she was so immersed in substance abuse and that wasn't being treated, that was difficult. And then also, as you pointed out, the bulimia was physically weakening her condition. We know that long-term bulimia weakens the cardiovascular system, causes things like cardiomyopathy. So in addition to what substance abuse would be doing, so her ability to tolerate the kinds of substance abuse that she was doing would be diminished. But... I think what's amazing when you listen to her lyrics and the trajectory. So now she's done Frank. She's done Back to Black. She's actually in the process of recording yet another album, which is not released until after her death. But what's amazing actually in telling her story is that really, for example, you brought up What Is It About Men on Frank. Those lyrics can't help but demonstrate my Freudian fate my destructive side has grown a mile wide. I'll take the wrong man as naturally as I sing. I'll save my tears for uncovering my fears for behavioral patterns that stick over years. Like, that is a summary of psychoanalytic proportion that one could only hope to come to, maybe after years of therapy, you know, that she could so succinctly put that in a paragraph of a song is amazing.
3: And yet she was always really resistant to to seeking professional psychological treatment. I always said that was such a a funny dichotomy as well, that she had that level of self-awareness, but didn't want anyone else to analyze her. I guess maybe that's not that surprising now that I say that.
2: It's not, and actually, in addition, unfortunately, so the last line there, history repeats itself. It fails to die. She had a fatalism about her that, she may not have believed that even that knowledge being power, which I, I'm i saying to people, hey, do therapy because if you know about yourself, you don't have to keep repeating the same behavioral patterns. She seemed to believe she was fated to repeat her history and that makes it hard to break out or believe that therapy can really be helpful to you. You also have to stay in one place for long enough and be willing to invest in the work. But again, her lyrics are so amazing in terms of having some personal insight. Where do we attribute her ability to compose in the way that she did?
3: She was always very vague about that. I think that it was really through being a jazz fan and the way that you could kind of extemporaneously Solo, I think she would start with her lyrics and just sort of scat sing. A lot of her early, early, early recordings when she was in, I think, the National uh, Youth Jazz Orchestra were sort of bebop influenced scat songs. So, I, my guess is that it was sort of born out of that.
2: As you said, she got her own place. She still thought Blake would come back, but that's not really what happened. She ends up dating and actually getting engaged to Reg Travis, who seems like a pretty good guy. He's a filmmaker. He does well. He's not involved with drugs and she's doing... Fewer drugs at that point. Yeah,
3: you know, the last year of her life seemed to be a major improvement. She looked great. She seemed strong. She was uh, the head of Universal, said that she was recording again, and the demos he heard sounded great. She recorded a cover of uh, Leslie Gore's It's My Party for a Quincy Jones tribute album, which was you know, one of the first things she'd released in 18 months, two years, something like that. And the high point of the period for her was in uh, March 2011. She did a song with her father's hero, Tony Bennett. And I did uh, cover "Body and Soul" for his, his duets two album, and the footage from that recording session is sweet because she turns into this almost little girl. She's so just in awe of of Tony Bennett, but it's also tough to watch because she is so hard on herself. And she and you see, even though she is Amy Winehouse, multi Grammy winning, back to black, world conquering. She, she, she'll she flub lines or not be happy with some of her, her vocal stylings and halt the take and she'll just have her head in her hands and just say to Tony over and over again I don't want to waste your time I don't want to waste your time that was terrible I was rubbish I, 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 I'm going to get one better don't worry I'm sorry I was terrible but next time I got it and he it, it, it's it's very sweet but it's also very sad to see how truly insecure she, she still is even after all she's accomplished yes it's insecure and
2: self-defeating right she's sort of beating herself up you watch her emotionally, you know, kind of punching herself uh, over being not good enough. But also you can see her deriving incredible pleasure from Tony Bennett saying, yes, you are. I'm so like, no, that was great. That was great. Like she's still a little girl who wants a daddy to say, I'm listening. I'm listening to you and you're wonderful. And I appreciate it. And so it is really poignant that, you know, I think, Looking for that father figure, looking for that kind of love that isn't about money or a deal or, you know, what have you done for me lately, but is really about being appreciated.
3: And in the last year of her life, too, you tend to notice that her alcohol binges tend to line up with when she has performances to do mm. she actually left rehab early to go on the road to do a, a tour a european tour in june 2011 and she really thought she could do it her there's conflicting theories about why she left her father said she, it was her choice other people say that she was persuaded to go because there was all this money on the line i won't speculate she got one date in in belgrade and it was extremely tragic to watch it, it, she could barely keep her head up Barely knew the words of her own songs. I mean, it, it went viral immediately thereafter, and the rest of the tour was canceled. But apparently in the weeks and months before that, she had really abstained. So I think that she, she needed that courage. She didn't, you know, didn't have Blake there, didn't have drugs there. That was really one of the last crutches she had was, was alcohol to sort of steal herself for these performances. Did
2: she have stage fright? Did she have performance anxiety? Because... You don't get that impression, certainly, in listening to her and her joy in being the center of attention, but people who do love it still can get stage fright, literally.
3: I don't think it's stage. I almost think it's just perfectionism. I think that if if she doesn't achieve to her satisfaction, because it would be in the studio, too, I mean, in the footage with with Tony, I mean, obviously, Tony Bennett is enough of an audience to give anyone stage fright, but uh, yeah, I think it was almost failure to achieve what she knew she could. So she arrives back home from this aborted European tour, and for about a month, I don't think she drank at all. For about three weeks, mm. then she went on stage with her goddaughter, who was a, a young thirteen-year-old singer named uh, Dion Bromfield, and Amy just sort of went to kind of be be a supporter. It was it was Dion's show; she wasn't really going to duet or anything. But I guess that day, for reasons only known to her she started drinking again. And I don't know if it was because she knew she was going to be on stage and there even, it wasn't to sing or perform, it was something about that. Or if it was just coincidence, I'm not sure. But that day, it was three days before she died, she apparently started drinking again and drinking quite heavily. So one thing that's a little
2: confusing is, for example, when she was in Europe and supposed to go on stage and was too drunk at that point, basically, you know, often it seems that Singers have managers and management who are kind of trying to make sure that they don't drink too much, that they that they do get on stage and that they do stay safe and in one piece. Where were her people?
3: The famous they of they tried to make me go to rehab. She, I think, fire them and got new management sort of more tolerant management or management that would sort of look the other way with this and it's tough to say i think that on some level it's the same thing that we were, we were talking about the song rehab i think maybe a lot of people just thought oh that's just how she is and i think just show business in general is just is so sort of shamefully indulgent intolerant of this kind of behavior because they're focused on on the bottom line and not the person who's generating the income just the income itself
2: i think that there's a false belief that all of the chemicals have something to do with the creativity have something to do with the not only the persona but the production and the appearance of everything that's appealing In the concert, you know, a lot of the audience will be doing substances, (laughs) the singers, the band will be doing substances that it's sort of part of the atmosphere, which is unfortunate because the reality is that, you know, overuse of drugs and alcohol does not promote creativity. Perhaps one could say small amounts, small amounts of alcohol may disinhibit one, but disinhibition is not the same thing as creativity. And her emotional experience and her awareness of her emotional experience, and I would even say her early depression, her early struggle with depression, many people who've struggled with depression have a lot of access to their feeling states, which make them unusually empathic, and usually able to tap into those dark times and use that material in a potentially very creative way. Many writers, many poets and, you know, writing music is a form of poetry really, you know, and, and certainly her lyrics were. So I think her creativity coming from reflections back on times of panic, anxiety, depression, struggles with identity, She exemplified the kind of originality and creativity that often come from people who have these kinds of struggles. Of course, she then also had this incredible voice (laughs) to do it with and control of her voice and that unique style. But I would really argue that it's unlikely that the substances in any way contributed to making that better. And, you know, sadly, in some ways, really derailed her from that creative ability.
3: And you find that people tend not to want to look into their their underlying psychological motivation because they're afraid that it's going to make the gift go away. You know what I mean? You, you hear that again and again with a lot of people who write is that they don't almost don't want to know where it comes from because they're afraid if they figure out how they do it, it'll leave them. It'll interfere with the process, which maybe explains in some level why she was so hesitant to receive any kind of counseling.
2: It may sadly explain her hesitancy, but last season we talked about John Lennon. And in fact, he went into this period of therapy to understand his struggles and his feeling states. And what did he do? He produced more great music that had to do with those feeling states. So really, the ability to self-reflect and understand and use that material is often actually a source of great creativity. And I think that's a sad myth that does sometimes keep people, particularly artists of various sorts, from self-exploration. And of course, tragically for her, you know, she basically died and was discovered dead, In July, having clearly gone out for a night of tremendous drinking, she, I think her blood alcohol level was like five times the driving limit. So clearly she could have died from pure alcohol toxicity alone, which would stop your breathing, but exacerbated by the fact that, as you brought up earlier, this eating disorder had really weakened. And she had been told in the months leading up to this time by a physician, you're going to die your bulimia is severe and it has weakened your cardiovascular system it is you know they were doing blood tests to try to look at where things were look at her liver which probably wasn't in good shape with all the alcohol use uh, look at her cardiovascular system look at her kidneys and clearly you know we don't know i don't think that information has ever been released appropriately so since she was the patient, but there was certainly insinuations from released conversations from the doctor that there were blood tests indicative that there were some medical problems as a result of bulimia and ongoing drug use and and probably malnutrition in that sense. So uh, the combination certainly was probably also instrumental in her death. It's surprising in a way that she was discovered and that there was no one with her, you know, during that day since people were so often around.
3: Yeah, the, the last person who saw her alive was her, her bodyguard. And she was watching YouTube clips of herself on stage. And I guess she, she said to him, you yeah, know, boy, I can sing. The Bodyguard I was like, yeah, yeah, you can. and Oh, that's so sad. I'm told she looked at him and said, but, you know, if I could give it all back to just be able to walk down the street like a normal person again, I would. Oh, gosh.
2: You said you were gonna cry, but maybe now I'm gonna cry. That's really tragic to be alone, alone in the middle of the night.
3: She died alone watching herself at the peak of her powers. I, you know, she deserved a lot better yeah. than Yeah,
2: Just goes to show that the feeling of abandonment, real or imagined, That the trauma that that induces and the desperate need to be the center of attention at all costs at all times, and how self-destructive that can be if it's not understood and worked through and resolved. But clearly, while organically or physically speaking, the alcohol and the bulimia were the cause of her death, I would argue that, you know, psychologically, her unresolved dilemma in terms of feeling abandoned and never being able to feel whole drove these behaviors that led to her death. And that's really just a tragedy. So 27, so young, clearly so much ahead of her in terms of her talent. She had been recording Lioness, which was released after her death.
3: There weren't a lot of tracks that she'd finished for it, unfortunately, but the ones that she had done were you know just as as forthright as ever. It was a song called uh, "Between the Cheats," just reflecting on on cheating. So she was just as you know as, as funny and self lacerating as ever. A great song, yeah. I mean, most of that album, I think, was is sort of like B sides and and unreleased stuff that she'd done prior to it. She hadn't done a lot for the the third album, but it's just great to hear her sing sing anything.
2: It is great to hear her sing anything, but you know, the the deeper one does get into substance use and abuse, the more it does interfere with work, production, innovation, the ability to think, just think and put, you know, string, string things together. So her ability to be original and creative in the third album, I think was lacking compared to the first two, and probably a reflection of how much She had been involved at that point in the drug use and abuse, sadly.
3: She always said, you know, music is what I'm good for. It's the only thing I can hold my head up high for.
2: One wonders if her difficulty, her struggle in being as innovative as she had been before played a role in keeping her immersed in alcohol use or or drug use. Because as you're pointing out, she needed to reflect and feel that that was the thing that was special about her. Right. Her ability to do that and seeing herself do less of that would be really
3: painful. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what one of the things that, that first drew me to her and her music. I mean, I first started listening to Back to Black when I was going through a heartbreak, too. And, you know, I think that's so many of her fans, they really felt like they knew her because, I mean, she just put it all out there in her music, not talking about all the the tabloid headlines and the photos and everything. I mean, it was really it was so vulnerable and so personal and so, I mean, you can be vulnerable and personal and not have a tenth of the amount of talent that she had, but she also had she had the goods in the vocal department, too.
2: And in pain, she expressed some universal feelings, right? What many of us feel.
3: She made me feel less alone, and I wish that we could have made her feel less alone.
2: The fact that she felt so alone is probably part and parcel of her creation of those very lyrics that connected to you and to all of us. Yeah to make us feel that somebody understood thank you that wraps things up for this episode appreciation to my guest jordan runtog and if you want to know more about amy winehouse or musical people take a listen to his podcast rivals if you'd like to know more about the concepts in personality you can check out my book the power of different the link between disorder and genius for psychological advice, you might want to check out my other podcast, How Can I Help? Follow me at Twitter at Dr. Gail Saltz. And until next time.
1: Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.